You are listening to the Sunnybrook Community Church Podcast. To learn more about Sunnybrook Church, including our Sunday gathering times and opportunities throughout the week, visit us online at sunnybrookchurch.org. Today's talk comes from Lydia Miller. Some of the most remarkable people I have ever met, and probably some of the most remarkable people you have ever met, are believe in spite of people. Have you ever met a believe in spite of person before? It's a person that no matter what they're going through, no matter what hardship they're facing, no matter what difficulty life has thrown at them, they just seem to have faith. This undercurrent of peace that God is just going to work it all out. No matter what they're going through, they seem to have joy. They seem to have a peace that surpasses all understanding. I'm always amazed by people like that. Some of you are maybe sitting in this room because of people like that, because you encountered someone who walked through a season that was really dark, really heavy, really difficult, and you noticed something different about them, that they weren't getting rattled by it, they didn't really seem to fear it, and you thought to yourself, I don't have that. I have like the opposite of that. I'm anxious all the time, and I'm scared of everything. I'm scared of the world that we live in. I'm scared to death of the future. I'm scared to death of death. And I want whatever it is that they have. They seem like they're just fine. I want to be just fine, even if there's really nothing to what they believe. So maybe you're sitting in this room or you're watching from home investigating what exactly it is that they believe in and how exactly that allows them to have hope. There's a man by the name of Dr. Francis Collins who had an interaction with one of these believe in spite of people that completely changed his life. Now, Francis Collins is an author, but he's probably most well known for the work that he has done in the science world. He has been put in charge of the Human Genome Project. It's an incredible project. Now, full disclosure, when I first read this fact about Dr. Collins, I had to Google exactly what a genome was. I never really paid attention science class. I was usually in the back wondering if I ever actually needed to know all of the steps of photosynthesis. Turns out, not really. But I had to look up what a genome was. You might be smarter than me, but if you need to know, a genome is an organism's complete set of DNA. All of the cells that make up the 3.1 billion pairs of letters that make up who you are, the language of you. And it was the job of Dr. Collins and his team to put together exactly this language. It's the studying of this language that has allowed them to find all sorts of genetic diseases, to help find cures. It's one of the things that he found in his career is the exact genetic mutation that causes cystic fibrosis. This man is doing incredible things in the science world. He is truly one of the geniuses of our time. But he would tell you, that the most notable moment in his career had nothing to do with the work that he was doing in the science world. It actually happened when he was doing his rounds as a medical doctor. It took place when he was 27 years old, so obviously long before this picture was taken. He's about Pastor Jeff Sage in this picture. But long before that, when he was 27 years old, he had an interaction with a woman that changed his life. He describes the rounds that he was doing, and he said, one of the things I had to do Because I often had to go into the hospital rooms of people who were facing really terminal diagnosis, people that really were staring death in the face. He said, one thing that kind of unnerved me is how much they would talk about their faith. 
How much they would talk about how excited they were to get to heaven, how excited they were to be reunited with their loved ones. And at this time, Dr. Collins would tell you that he was raised in an agnostic household. He was raised in a household that didn't believe. He was taught to not believe. And the more he got into the science world, the more he didn't believe. He would have been a self-proclaimed agnostic himself. And this faith that these people had honestly made him mad. He said, I wanted to grab them by the shoulders and shake them and say, if there really is a God, and if this God has a plan, how in the world are you okay with this being the plan? How can you sit here and talk about a loving God while you're facing death? How in the world can you believe in spite of? It was until one day that Dr. Collins walked into the hospital room of a young lady. He says she had congenital heart failure. There really was no sense in her recovering. It really wasn't going to happen. She knew that the end for her was near. And as he's standing in the corner of her room, she starts talking about her faith, about her excitement about heaven, until all of a sudden she stops. She notices him standing quietly in the corner, and she looks at him and she says, Doctor, what do you believe? He said he got really red and awkward, and he kind of stammered, and he looked at her and he just said, I don't know. He said in that moment, God faced him with his willful blindness said, I recognized in that moment how ignorant I had been to consider anything in the world of faith. So like a good scientist, he started an investigation, an investigation of religion, an investigation of faith, and he didn't stop short just at Christianity. He researched it all. He looked into the Islam faith. He looked into Buddhism. He looked into Judaism. He looked into it all, and he even looked into Christianity. He said all of it seemed really ritualistic. All of it seemed really rote until I came upon the story of a man named Jesus. And in his own words, he would tell you that all of the sudden, he wasn't just reading notes on a page. All of the sudden, he was starting to hear the music. He went in search of evidence. His scientific mind went in search of something that he was going to be able to believe, and he found the evidence in Jesus. It's one of the things I love most about Jesus is that 2,000 years prior to this, Jesus knew that there would be the Francis Collins of the world, that there would be people who would go in search of evidence, and that evidence would be absolutely pivotal to their faith. What they were able to find or what they were not able to find would directly impact whether or not they could actually believe that Jesus was the Son of God. It's why when Jesus was here, he would say time and time again to his disciples and the people that followed him, come and see. Don't just come and have faith. Don't just come and believe. Don't just take me at my word. Come and see. Because Jesus knew that seeing was believing, and he knew that his disciples, his followers, and eventually us would need to see for ourselves that he was, in fact, exactly who he claimed to be. So we've been doing this series entitled Come and See, taking a look at those signs from Jesus, seven of them that one of his very best friends writes down firsthand in the book of John. All of the accounts that John thinks are noteworthy that give us the signs that we need that prove that Jesus is in fact the Son of God. Last week we took a look at when Jesus turned water into wine. And this morning, we're going to take a look at the miracle of the healing of the nobleman's son. Now, when they last left Jesus and his disciples, they were at a wedding. 
The wedding had run out of wine. Jesus' mother said to him, hey, we've run out of wine. I need you to fix it. And Jesus looks at his mom and he says, mom, I didn't come to the world to save weddings. I came here to save the world. And then Mary does the most mom thing ever. She completely ignores Jesus, and he says, Mom, I'm not going to do it. And she turns to the servants, and she basically says, He's going to do it. Just hang on. And sure enough, Jesus does it. He saves the wedding. And then he continues on his way. We see in the next chapters of John some really famous encounters that you've maybe read or at least heard of. There's the flipping of the tables in the temple. There's that interaction with the woman at the well. And then eventually, Jesus and his disciples make their way back to Cana, where his first miracle took place, and that is where our miracle picks up. We're going to be in John chapter 4. We're starting in verse 46. It's a little bit of the way in if you have your Bible and you want to follow along, but it starts this way. It says, as he traveled through Galilee, he came to Cana, where he had turned the water into wine. There was a government official in nearby Capernaum whose son was very sick. Now, here's what we know in terms of relation here. Jesus is in Cana. The government official whose son is sick is in nearby Capernaum, about 16 miles away. Now, that doesn't feel like it's very far until we remember that they don't have cars. And if this government official is going to travel to Jesus, then he's going to travel to him by foot, not in a fresh pair of Nikes, but in sandals. I feel like we need to give credit where credit is due. He would have had to walk either eight hours or take a horse two to three hours to get to Jesus. Now, we're not given a whole lot of information on this government official, but based on the time that he's living, where he's located, and the title that he has, we can assume a few things about him. First of all, he's a royal official, so we know that he's probably very wealthy. He probably comes to Jesus in a chariot and probably not by himself. There's likely bodyguards and servants, a whole kind of entourage that go with him to see Jesus. We also know that he is likely a Sadducee. Maybe remember in Sunday school, if you attended Sunday school, hearing about the Pharisees and the Sadducees. The Pharisees we hear a lot about more in Scripture. The Pharisees were really religious. They kept the law meticulously, and they really believed that God was active in the world. He could kind of be seen in the day-to-day. But the Sadducees were sad, you see. Did you? Dad joke. I... Figured because my dad wasn't here, you would miss his corny joke, so I threw one in for you. But the Sadducees were very different. They were really intellectual. They weren't sure if they believed in an afterlife, and they definitely did not believe that God was active in the day-to-day. Everything was determined by fate. Their life was already written out. Everything was already decided. How many kids they had was decided. Where they fell in society was decided. All of their days were planned out. There was no sense in praying to God because God wasn't going to change any of their situations anyway. And this is the exact mindset of this nobleman whose son is sick. But it's amazing in this story how none of that matters to him anymore because he is no longer a Sadducee. He is now a desperate father whose son is dying. Isn't it amazing how desperation does that to us? How quickly you and I are willing to throw out reason or intellect when we or someone we love is suffering. All of a sudden, we don't really care what makes sense anymore. All of a sudden, we're praying to a God that we weren't even really sure existed. Nothing brings people to their knees faster. Nothing brings people to consider a God that they've ignored their entire life faster than suffering. Some of you in this room, the only prayers you have prayed are prayers like that. Prayers that have started a little bit like, to whom it may concern. 
I don't know if anyone is out there, but if there is, I could really use some help right now. But there's more to it than that. More to it than it just being this last-ditch effort of desperation. More to it than us just saying, well, I've done everything else. I guess all there is left to do is pray. It is an innate sense in each and every single one of us. Because imprinted on your soul is this understanding that there's something more. If you have ever felt that before, that is the thumbprint of God on the very fabric of who you are. This understanding that outside of you, there's someone in control. That the things that are happening to you in this life are not mere circumstance or fate. There's this deep understanding inside of you that someone is out there controlling it all. There's this small flicker of hope and of optimism within you that there's a God out there who's got you. And it is this exact flicker that leads this nobleman to travel these 16 miles and finds himself at the feet of Jesus. It says, when he heard that Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee, he went and he begged Jesus to come to Capernaum to heal his son who was about to die. Now, I'm going to kind of theorize exactly how this went down. This is just a theory, so don't take it too seriously. But I would imagine that word about Jesus has kind of gotten out at this point. That word has gotten around, rumors have been started of exactly what happened at the wedding. Maybe there's a few side miracles that Jesus has performed, but eventually everyone is starting to hear about this man from Nazareth. And as this man's son is dying, I would imagine his wife eventually says to him, hey, listen, Go out there, get that Jesus, bring him back here, and make him heal our son. And I would imagine this man is thinking, that is the last thing that I want to do. Our son is on the verge of death, and you want me to take an entire day to go hunt down this man from Nazareth that we've only heard rumors about and get him back here and make him heal our son? Is that really logical? Does that really make sense to you? But in this moment, a famous phrase comes to mind. You may have heard it before. That the man is the head of the household, but the woman is the neck. And she can turn the head in whatever direction she wants. And I think that's exactly what happened here. Eventually, this man has decided he's going to go find Jesus. He's eventually going to track this rabbi down and get him to come back to his house. And that's exactly what he goes off to do. And when he finds Jesus, it says that he literally sits at his feet and begs. This would have been a spectacle. This man is a royal official. Jesus, by society standards, is a peasant. And here comes this royal official rolling in and begging at the feet of a peasant. And he basically says to Jesus, what will it take to get you to come back to my house, to get you to my son's bedside in order to heal him? And what Jesus says to him next has always felt a little insensitive to me, but this is one of those moments where translations fall short. But in our translation, it says this, that Jesus looks at the man and he says, will you never believe in me unless you see miraculous signs and wonders? Now, the you that Jesus uses here is a plural you, like a Jewish y'all. But he's speaking to the group. He's speaking to everyone that has gathered around. And he's really not saying it like an accusation. He's saying it because he understands. He's saying, you people will never believe in me unless I give you a reason to believe. 
Remember, this is a day and age and a time where messiahs, false messiahs have come in droves. False prophets have been predicting that the messiah is going to come for hundreds of years, and people are really skeptical about whether or not someone is the actual messiah, the actual son of God. And Jesus knew that. And he wasn't expecting them to just have faith in faith or to just believe without seeing. He knew that he needed to give them evidence. He didn't want them to just have faith in faith. He didn't want them to just hear a preacher who could razzle-dazzle them with words and stories. He wanted them to have evidence. So the man looks at Jesus and he pleads with him. He says, Lord, please come now before my little boy dies. In the eyes of the nobleman, there are two options in this moment. Jesus can either agree to go along with him and his son will live, or Jesus can say no and his son will die. But I think in this moment, Jesus smiles because there's a third option, an option that will get people talking, a wonder so wonderful that for the next 2,000 plus years, people would be listening and believing based on this story and this story alone. Jesus looks at him and he says, go. Now, if you tease this out in the Greek a little bit, it actually literally means go about your business. Go about your day, do a little shopping, get some coffee. Don't hurry, don't worry about anything. Go. Go about your day, eventually go back home, and your son will live. I'd imagine that in this moment, the nobleman is a little bit dumbfounded. This wasn't an option for him. This wasn't something that he had considered. And I would imagine he's looking at Jesus thinking, Jesus, I need you to come home with me, or there are going to be two deaths in our family this morning. But Jesus says, I'm not going to go with you. But I need you to take me at my word, and I need you to believe that I'm going to do something here. And I can't even imagine the tension that this nobleman feels. Really, by society standards, he probably could have taken Jesus by force. He probably could have gotten his bodyguards to gather Jesus and his team up and take them back. But he stands there in this tension of whether or not to take Jesus at his words, not because of what he's seen, but simply because of what he's heard from other people. This is a moment for me where we don't give the intentionality of Jesus enough credit. Because if you look in just this minor moment, you will recognize that this moment is our entire lifetime of faith condensed to a day. Every single day in your faith, Jesus is asking you to take him at his word based not on what you have physically seen yourself, but based solely on the words of other people. Jesus looked at the nobleman and asked him to entrust the life of his son into the stories this man has heard. And every single day, when you get out of bed and you make the decision whether or not to believe in the fact that Jesus is who he said he was, you are doing exactly what the nobleman was asked to do in this moment, to trust Jesus based on the words of the people who knew him, to entrust your health, to entrust your sick kids, your healthy kids, your finances, your future, to entrust all of that based solely on what you've read about Jesus, what you've heard about Jesus. And I love that Jesus gives this in a moment. 
Our lifetime, what he requires of us and our whole life of faith, he gives to us in a moment. And then he shows us what that looks like played out. Because we see in the story, in this tension, that the nobleman chooses faith. It says that he believed what Jesus said. And then this part is so intentional, don't miss it. Then he behaves based on what he believes. He started for home. If I'm honest, that's often the portion I get wrong. That behaving as if I believe what Jesus said can be trusted. I'm really good in my quiet time and in my prayers of saying that I believe in Jesus, saying that I believe in the plan, and saying that I'm okay surrendering to the plan that God has for me. But when it comes to behaving that way, when it comes to walking through my day without anxiety or fear, when it comes to walking through my day without trying to control the circumstances or outcomes, that's often where I get it wrong. But Jesus shows us what it looks like when we get it right. When the nobleman behaves as if what Jesus says can be trusted and he decides to start for home without Jesus. And he walks away from Jesus by faith. If you grew up in church, you maybe heard that phrase a lot. I heard it a lot growing up. Walk by faith and not by sight. But here's what they often didn't really flesh out for us is that walking by faith is not just walking by blind faith. Walking by faith is not just walking by wishful thinking. Walking by faith is making an intention each and every single day to live your life as if Jesus is who Jesus claimed to be. Walking by faith is walking with confidence into every situation, every season of life with the confidence that not only that Jesus is who he said he was, but that what he said can be trusted, that the promises he makes, that the character of who he is can be trusted in your life as well. Walking by faith is the confidence that your faith is anchored to something real and someone real. Walking by faith is knowing that God's plan for your life is better than yours. And that even when it's different, even when Jesus isn't physically walking with you like the nobleman so desperately wanted him to, that the plan that God has is still better than yours. What I love is what Jesus gives us next, the good part. The part we know we need, because honestly, the story is not significant unless we get the part at the end. It says, when the man was on his way home, some of his servants met him with the news that his son was alive and well. And then I love this extra detail from Jesus. It would have been enough that this man's son was alive and well. It would have been obvious then that Jesus did what he claimed to do. But I think because Jesus wanted to make sure that there was no chance that you could chalk this up to circumstance or fate or anything like that, he gives us this little extra detail on the end. The man looks at his servants and he says, when exactly did he get well? And his servants look at him and he says, yesterday afternoon at one o'clock, his fever suddenly disappeared. And then the father realized that this was the very time that Jesus had told him, your son will live. And it was in this moment that this Sadducee, this man who had so often for so long based his decisions just on reasoning and intellect had realized that Jesus was in fact exactly who he said he was and what he said could be trusted He knew that Jesus had fulfilled his promise, even if it looked differently than this man wanted it to. 
The nobleman wanted to walk arm in arm with Jesus back home. But he didn't get that. And you and I don't get that either. But like the nobleman, we don't need it. We have all that we need. The promise that Jesus is, in fact, the Son of God. And the promise from Jesus that his plan for us is to prosper us and not to harm us. That even when things from God look different, that he has for us hope and a future. I love the way that this story ends. For those of you who are maybe in a season of walking by faith right now, those of you where the path that you are on looks much different than you wanted it to, those of you who are just putting your eyes on Jesus and walking forward, the end of this story is for you. It says, when the man gets home and they realize what has happened, what Jesus has done, that he and his entire household believed in Jesus. Don't miss this. If you are someone who is walking by faith right now, can I tell you, you have no idea who your faith is inspiring. You have no idea who is sitting on the sidelines and who is inspired by the peace and the joy that is within you. You have no idea who is looking at you watching the way you're handling the circumstances that you have been handed and is wondering, I wonder if there's anything to that. It's exactly what happened in the life of Dr. Collins. One woman who was brave enough to face her diagnosis with this undercurrent of trust that God was at the center of it all that caused him to look into it, that caused him to investigate faith. It led him to search for evidence, and he eventually found the exact evidence that he was looking for. Dr. Collins would go on to read one of the most interesting, educational, foundational books of our faith I feel like we have right now called The Language of God, a scientific look at faith. And in this book, he takes every single scientific argument there has been about God, and he brings it to light, and he shows you that faith and science can coexist. This book has inspired countless skeptics to believe in Jesus, all because Francis Collins was inspired by one woman who had the faith to believe. There are dear friends of mine that I have got to watch walk by faith. Their faith that they have had as they are standing in a season that they don't understand. A season that doesn't yet have an ending that they know. A season that has been incredibly difficult. They have maintained a life that walks by faith. A life that trusts that Jesus can be trusted. And a life that understands that even though it isn't their plan, there is a plan. And the plan of God is always good. If you were encouraged by today's talk, check out our Sunnybrook Unscripted podcast where we talk real life, answer hard questions, and take a deeper practical look at the topics we talk about on a Sunday morning. For other talks, videos, and live gatherings, rate us and hit subscribe on iTunes and Spotify. Download the Sunnybrook Church app or visit us online at sunnybrookchurch.org. And again, thanks for listening to the Sunnybrook Community Church podcast.